Uh, just as we begin this morning, uh, I've got a question. Uh, how much do you think uh, the Vatican would pay for the Pope's name? Uh, what I mean by that uh, is uh, an internet domain name. And that was a question that a guy called Roger Cadenhead asked a little while ago, not for the present Pope, but for the former Pope. If you remember his name before the, the, the new name was chosen. Uh, his name was Cardinal Ratzinger. Uh, but this guy, Roger Cadenhead, went ahead and registered the domain name www.benedictthesixteenth.com before the Vatican knew they needed the name. It's very lucrative to be able to um, register a name like that ahead of time. This guy himself does it routinely. Uh, he's a self-described internet domain name hoarder. Uh, but he didn't want money. He said at the time, I'm not interested in money. I don't want to anger the world's 1.1 billion Catholics and my grannies among them. I want three things. One, I want one of those pointy hats. Two, I want a free stay at the Vatican Hotel. And three, I want complete absolution for the third week of March, 1987. Now, that, of course, makes you wonder what happened on the third week of March in 1987. But actually, I'm sure all of us have got something similar. If the, your entire life was transferred onto a series of DVDs, which one would you want to get destroyed? Now, the story we've read this morning uh, is probably one of the, the most famous passages in the entire Bible. It caused uh, havoc in David's life because of the choices that he, he made. It's evidently centered around sex. And of course, we live in a society that is very highly sexualized. But as followers of, of Jesus, we would want to take our lead from what we find, it, what the Bible is saying to us about how we might live as distinct Christian followers or followers of Jesus in the midst of this society. As one of the, the writers I happened to read this week ha had commented, uh, some of you will have grown up when the edgy band of the day were the Beatles, and they were singing things like, I want to hold your hand. Uh, in more recent times, lyrics have been sung by people like Christine Aguilera, who sings Sex for Breakfast, and Katy Perry, who sang, I kissed a girl and I liked it. So when we live in a society that is very openly different from uh, what we read about in the Bible and what the Bible might expect, but before we even get into any of the specifics of this story, there is a, a general progression of thought, a line in many ways that runs through this passage and I think actually is true for any, any temptation that we might face. Actually, any action, any attitude about which the verdict that is given 
in the very last sentence of the passage we read. If you look at first the very last line of, of, of the passage in front of us, and the verdict is this, but says, this thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So I'm thinking now about anything about which that could be said. And I think as we think about the, the progress of how we get to that point, it's self-evident that there is something that is going on in the mind. And certainly that is true for David as he is on the rooftop, as you encounter him at the start of this passage and he sees this woman called Bathsheba and she's taking a bath. But there is one thing in that process that is clear and it's evident and it is something about which Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote. And it is simply that David, in those moments, had certainly forgotten God. Actually, what Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote in his book, Temptation, he says, the devil doesn't actually want to get you to hate God. All that the devil needs to do is to get you to forget God. And I think that's significant for David. Uh, whenever we encounter David in 1 Samuel, think of that situation where David was going out to fight Goliath. And what the Bible makes very clear is where, David, where David's focus was, what David was thinking about in all of that. Because everybody else in the Israelite camp was only looking at one thing. They were looking at Goliath and they were looking at how big Goliath was and what such a giant man he was. And so everybody else was quaking in their boots. But David was not looking at Goliath. David was not looking at his natural fears what the Bible draws out time and again is that David was focused on God. That's where David was looking at. But now, as we encounter David in 2 Samuel chapter 11, it is very clear that David has forgotten God. And that's highlighted right the way through this passage. And it's highlighted in the way in which I think one word in particular is used, and that's the word sent because it's talking about what David did, and it's giving the impression this is his actions, it's his choices, with no reference to God. For instance, in verse 1, it says David sent Joab into the battle. In verse 3, it says David sent his servant to inquire who this woman was. In verse 4, he sent out more messengers to get the woman. After hearing uh, that uh, she's pregnant, he then sent word to Joab to send him Uriah. And at the end of it, he sends Uriah to his death in verse 14. And at the very end of chapter, or of chapter in verse 27, uh, whilst it's disguised in the version that we're probably reading from, it does say that he sends for Bathsheba to come to be his wife in verse 27. But all that focuses on David's actions. It's David's choice. And nowhere, nowhere is God mentioned because... David has forgotten God. And that, I think, is the progress, it's the seed, the development of any temptation that we face that leads to sin. And it's this process of simply forgetting God. So it's whether or how you allow your eyes to wander and to land on anything, whether that's a computer screen, whether it's porn on a computer screen, whether it's a, a, a real 
human being. It could even be a car. It could be a house. It could be anything that you want. So in this sense, it is very general. But where this progress and development of temptation leads to sin is when you forget God and that this thing, whatever it is, becomes more important to you than God himself. And that's the biggest lesson, I think, that's in this passage. But as we begin to work our way through this passage, there are some other things, I think, that come out of it. And it's, the first one is self-evidently that sin destroys stuff. I mean, that's what we experience in life. Now, the, the sexual ethics of the Scriptures are very different from our modern society. Our modern society, I think, is pretty much of the, of the viewpoint that the only provisos that they have for the parameters of, of sexual uh, encounter is if the two people are consenting, if no one is getting hurt, then why, why, get, why get excited about this? But the Bible repeatedly affirms that any sexual activity outside of marriage is beyond what uh, the Bible is saying this is what God's way is. And that's because the Bible is trying to say is that sex is very important and it's, and it's got a very particular role and that is in the sense of commitment a man, one man and one woman and it's in that context that children are, are to be raised. And those are the boundaries that God places. And I think that's, the purpose of verse 3. After David sent, sent this servant out, if we read verse 3 together, I mean, this servant then comes back and the man said, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. It's as if this, this man comes back and, he, and he's saying, you know, this is a real human being and this is someone's daughter. This is someone's wife. David, this is, this is not a simply a plaything for you. This is, this is a real human being and tampering with this, with this relationship, tampering with this person will not only ruin her life, but will ruin everybody's life. The, the Bible is giving this sense, of course, that sin does destroy. And if someone is listening to me now, either here or, or online, and it is possible that you could be in that sense flirting with someone who is not your wife or not your, your husband, then take the warning that is from the Scriptures. But as I've been suggesting, it's not simply necessarily so narrow within the context here. It could be that it's pornography itself that is having a vice-like grip upon you, or something completely different. You're, you're forming a web of lies around your life to disguise something else, or perhaps it's unchecked pride that is killing you, or maybe even a grudge, a grudge against someone else, and because of that, you can't let go of it, and it's a grip on you. So sin, whatever it is, destroys, and that's what this passage is saying. Or another thing that this passage is saying is that you should only be engaged or you should be actively engaged in God's plan. Where this went wrong for David is that he was not doing what he should have been doing. It opens up in verse 1 with the idea of saying, David, all his soldiers were sent out to battle. It was the springtime when kings go out to fight. But David was not. David was back in Jerusalem. And it was that that made him susceptible to this sin because sin can grow out of boredom. As one of the, the writers, again, I was reading, had put it, 
uh, in very graphic terms, he says, it's a lot harder to get your trousers off in the middle of a battle than it is when you're lounging around on a sofa. And it might be that some people may be susceptible to sexual sin because they feel there is no higher purpose to their life. And what you actually have is a void in your life because you are not in a good place with God. And that's the priority that you need to have. And only a vision of what God can do in your life, only an understanding of what God has done in your life, only this sense of the wonder of God, even as uh, we were praising God at the very outset of our service today, why we wanted to lift up and think about the beauty and the wonder of God is precisely it's this vision of God that we need and this vision of God will keep us from sin. You have things to be doing that you should be actively engaged in for God. Begins with your nearest and dearest, your family, your own context, but be doing that rather than ignoring that. Or another thing we can maybe take away from this passage is that we actually need to run away from temptation because David here had put himself in the prime spot to be under the pressure of temptation. It's easier to avoid temptation than to resist temptation. I mean, David was in the bother because not only was he back in Jerusalem, but because he was on the rooftop. And it would have been easier for him not simply not to have gone there. It's easier to avoid it than to place yourself in a place where you're going to have to fight temptation. As Martin Luther said a long time ago, if your head is made of butter, don't stand near the fire. So you you run away. Or as a point, another thing from this lesson, from this passage, and it's repeatedly been coming through this passage, is that we need to be captivated by God. In the next chapter we're going to hear about next week, when David is confronted about his sin, in verse 10, Nathan the prophet says to David, you have despised God, or that's what God says, you have despised me in doing this. Now, perhaps you might say, but David never said that. But what despised means in this context is that David thought nothing of trading God for something else, trampling over the glory of God so that he could have the pleasure of Bathsheba. That's what despising God is in this context. In the same way that maybe a man who's got three young kids comes home to his wife and says, I'm leaving you because I've met another woman. I mean, that man didn't wake up one morning and suddenly say to everybody else, I hate my family, but he despises his family because he has chosen to trade his family for the pleasure of someone else. That's what it means to despise when you trade one thing for another. And that's what David was doing and that's where he had gone wrong. And so we should avoid sin and increase our delight in God. And perhaps the final thing we take from this passage is perhaps where the bulk of this passage develops. And it's how David tries to cover up his sin. You know, he tries to get Uriah to sleep with his wife. 
When that doesn't work, he then gets Uriah killed so that there's a, a trail that's dead and that no one can, can uncover his sin. And perhaps even right now, we need to ask ourselves at times certain questions. Maybe questions like, what is my secret sin? How am I hiding this sin from other people? How long have I been hiding this sin from other people? And what are the results of me hiding this sin from others? And what toll is it taking on me, the fact that I am hiding this sin? Proverbs 28 verse 13 goes, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. You know, the biggest lesson of this passage isn't that you can simply muster up the strength to withstand sin yourself, but rather, of course, that you need to cast yourself upon a greater power. We're going to hear an awful lot more about that next week. We understand that David had to pay a huge price for his sin and what he had done. But here we remind ourselves that it's the grace of God that proves stronger. And that's what we need to cast ourselves upon because we're not perfect and we will fail and we will fall, but we look to Jesus Christ who forgives. And central to that is repentance and confession. <clears throat> Rather than perhaps me praying at this point, I'm going to get you to lift your eyes to the screen uh, behind me. And uh, the screen is going to just remind us of the need to repent as individuals, but also reminding us why we can do it and find grace and forgiveness in what Jesus Christ has done for us.